Hey guys, this is post episode actually from the future. <laughs> so, um, there's a couple of things I want to say about this episode. First of all, it's a little bit unstructured compared to usual and different. Um, that's mostly because moving has made it a bit difficult to keep on top of things. Uh, hopefully, I'll be back on track soon, but I hope you enjoy the episode. But yeah, it's a bit different and and hopefully it'll give you a laugh too. Um, just for the sheer absurdity of some of the things that go on. I haven't edited yet, so this could be a completely pointless message, but we'll see how it goes. Um, this episode does have a few of oh, potentially hold up that's fucked up uh, from a modern point of view. Uh, I haven't gone too much into it because I just feel like this episode got gone a lot longer than need be. Um, on that, I'm going to move this into the main episode and hopefully it'll be all right. <laughs> I'll see you on the other side. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today it's another solo mission, no guest, as it's been a bit tough raining stuff with me moving this weekend. Uh, sorry about this being late, same reason. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, just got the one story today, and for the last few weeks have been a bit dark, so let's switch up a bit and go do something completely different. We're going to talk about one of England's most famous pranksters, William Horace de Vere Cole. So, let's um, cut the music and we'll get straight into it. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. And we are back. So... William Horace de Vere Cole. He was famous for being a prankster and a poet, and was born in Cork, Ireland, though he'd gained his fame in England later on. And he was the son of the British Army officer William Utting Cole, who was a major in the 3rd Dragoon Guards, and had died of cholera in India when Cole was a child. His mother, Mary de Vere, was the niece and heiress of Sir Stephen and Lady de Vere, while his paternal grandfather had made his fortune dealing quinine which was a medication for, to treat malaria at the time. Quite well known for being an ingredient for a tonic water, and was a significant factor in the colonization of Africa uh, by European people. Like, to the point that uh, quinine was the main reason that Africa stopped being known as the white man's grave. Essentially getting new opportunities to colonize places like the Gold Coast, Nigeria, and other parts of West Africa. Yeah. When he was 10, he came down with diphtheria, which seriously affected his hearing for the rest of his life. 
You may remember that very from uh, one of our previous episodes when we talked about the Great Race of Mercy in our animal-based episode from before. I can't remember what it's called. I should know this. Uh, mostly Dogs and Horses. I think that was episode 25. And so I think we went through the symptoms and stuff there, so I won't go too much into that here. But instead, I did bring I did uh, find some history stuff for it instead, because in the end, it's still a dark podcast, and I feel like this I feel like this topic needs tangents to fit into that some like a bit. So yeah, like, diphtheria, pretty serious shit. Like and it's been around for ages. It's first described in the fifth century BC by the Greek philosopher Hippocrates, and yeah, and it's currently most common in sub-Saharan Africa, India, and Indonesia. And where it's common, it's usually the children that are most affected. Though in the developed world nowadays, uh, there's widespread vaccination for it. And in 2015, uh, 4,500 cases were reported worldwide, which is down from like nearly 100,000 in 1980, and what's believed to be a million cases a year before the 80s. And there's been multiple epidemics throughout history. Like, for example, in 1613, Spain had an epidemic with like that was bad enough that. The year was called El Ano de los Garotilos, which translates to the year of strangulations. Not something you want to have. And it wasn't just um, it wasn't just the poor that would suffer from it. It was anyone. Like, and some of the more famous examples were in 1878, where Queen Victoria's daughter, Princess Alice, and her family became infected, which caused the death of both Alice and Princess Marie of Hesse and, and Byron. And also in on the seventh of January, nineteen o four, Ruth Cleveland, who was the eldest daughter of former President Grover Cleveland, um, uh, died after catching diphtheria. And like with a lot of diseases, infections become a lot more common with war. And in nineteen forty three, diphtheria outbreaks caused one million cases in Europe alone, resulting in fifty thousand deaths. But anyway, let's get back to coal. So. So he lived in Eton for a while, though in 1900 he left Eton uh, at, to join the Duke of Cambridge's Imperial Yeomanry. Yeah, it was essentially a volunteer cavalry force, um, made up of men who held and cultivated small estates. Now the Yeomanry was never actually meant to serve overseas, but during the Second Boer War, from the 10th to the 17th of December 1988, the British Army suffered three devastating defeats by the Boer Republics at the battles of Stormberg, Magusfontein, and Colenso, with a total of 2,776 men killed, wounded, and captured. And this was dubbed Black Week. So at this point, the British government kind of realised that the war was losable, so they needed more troops. And a royal warrant was issued on the 24th of December 1899 to allow volunteer forces to serve, with the royal warrant asking for standing yeomanry regiments to provide service companies of about... 115 men each for the Imperial Yeomanry, to which the regiment provided the 9th Yorkshire Doncaster Company, 3rd Battalion in 1900, the 66th Yorkshire Company, 16th Battalion, co-sponsored with the Yorkshire Dragoons in 1900, which was then transferred to the 3rd Battalion in 1902, and the 109th Yorkshire Stars Company, 3rd Battalion in 1901. It's kind of unclear as to when um, Cole was serving, from what I can tell, um, but he was wounded by a dum-dum bullet on the 2nd of July 1900 and would recover from his wounds at the Red Cross Hospital in Kronestad until September that year. 
Redundant bullets were a name for expanding bullets, which were designed to expand on impact, essentially making wounds wider for fast inca incapacitation. Yeah, they're generally prohibited for use in war, um, with the Hague Convention in 1899, but they're known to be used in hunting and by some police departments due to fast incapacitation and it being less likely for the bullet to pass through, as bullets passing through make it much more likely for, for collateral damage to occur. But after he'd recovered, he he was invalidated from the army and received £1,800 from cashing in a disability pension, which he would donate to fund for war widows and orphans. Um, and just to get a bit more of his lifestyle out of the way first, we'll circle back around in a second. When he returned to England, he joined Trinity College in Cambridge uh, in 1902, though he didn't complete his degree. And when his paternal grandmother, Jane, died in 1906... Cole inherited West Woody House in the parish of West Hooday in Southern Berkshire, though he wasn't able to afford the upkeep, and, and in 1912 he sold the property to his uncle, Alfred Clayton Cole, who would later become the governor of the Bank of England. It's also worth noting that his sister Annie would go on to marry the future Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who would be Prime Minister from May 1937 to May 1940, it's quite well known for being Prime Minister during the first few months of World War II. Like, but like I said, Cole was known for being a prankster. So let's get into some of his hoaxes. So, his first hoax occurred in 1905 while he was an undergrad at Trinity College at Cambridge University. So Cole would read that the Sultan of Zanzibar was visiting London and had an idea. So, with the help of some friends, him and his friend Adrian Stephen would make an official visit to his own college, impersonating the Sultan of Zanzibar, with um, Adrian Stephen being dressed as the Sultan and himself being a bilingual translator. They dressed up in, ex in exotic clothing and put on makeup before travelling from London to Cambridge by train after sending a telegram to the mayor's office informing him of the short-notice visit. Oh, actually, just to elaborate, Cole was... Um, Accompanying him as his bilingual uncle, who was the who would act as the translator, and once they arrived at Cambridge, they found a civic party uh, waiting on the platform to greet them, and the council would hold a civic reception followed by a tour of the university. Um, and one source I've seen says there was also a charity bazaar held, and they had a pleasant guided tour of their own college, where none of their fellow students recognised them. One of the main issues of trying to get this to go down properly was that. Neither of them could actually speak Swahili, so they spoke gibberish to one another through the entire trip. Which, um, and they nearly got caught once when an elderly lady who had been a missionary in Africa wanted to address the Sultan in his native tongue. But Cole managed to avert disaster by explaining to the woman that um, she could only address the Sultan if she became part of his harem. And yes, this this episode won't ha like it'll have a lot of nineteen tenisms, which. I have considered, but decided if we kept going on with that, we wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, yeah. And I don't really want to leave anything out. Uh, but yes, the joke would last all the way back to the station, bit where they fled back to London. And shortly after, the story was given to the Daily Mail by Cole, and the prank would become famous. The mayor, red-faced as he was, wanted the students sent down, but, but was persuaded by the vice-chancellor that this would only serve to damage his reputation further. So he backed down. This would be the start of many, many pranks. And I'm going to try and get through as many of these as I can. Uh, because 
Some of these are generally quite funny. So, in no particular order, first we're going to do is yeah, the way he himself looked. He had a mane of hair and a and a moustache, which caused him to be often confused with Prime Minister Ram- Ramsay MacDonald. And which, just in case, I probably should mention, Ramsay MacDonald was the was a Labour Prime a Labour government Prime Minister. Um, and he attended a meeting of the Labour Party where he told members to work for less money and followed that up by later, by quote, later haranguing a gang of navvies on the evils of socialism. And a lot of his pranks would mainly target figures of authority that he deemed pompous, which would include members of parliament, city businessmen, naval officers, and and also sometimes normal people. Um, but yes, anyway. One of his favourite jokes was to challenge well-known sportsmen or politicians to a running race in the street. Um, But sometimes this would have a twist. One of the most well-known instances was when he challenged the Tory MP Oliver Locker Lampson to a race in the street and discreetly slid his gold watch into the politician's pocket. He then let the MP take the lead and started shouting, Stop thief! Stop thief! when they neared a patrolling policeman. The MP would end up being arrested in St. James's. And um, I've seen two outcomes of this. Um, and one was that the MP was arrested in St. James's and taken to the nearest police station, where he had a hard time explaining why he had Cole's watch in his pocket. While the other outcome was that Cole explained that it was all a joke, and the men were both told to proceed on their way quietly. Unfortunately, Cole then began waving his stick around, as if conducting an imaginary band. And which resulted in both men being arrested and taken into custody. No charge was brought against Locker Lampson, but Cole was found guilty of a breach of the peace and fined £5, which is not a small amount, as after looking up, I found out that £5 in 1910 would be about £509 in 2017 money. It's rumoured that Cole once hosted a party, which he didn't attend, but he invited a bunch of people, and they realised their host wasn't there, so they started introducing themselves. Yeah, one of them was Mr. Ramsbottom, and one was Mr. Winterbottom. All of them had bottom in their names. And another story, he bought a bunch of tickets for particular seats at a theatre performance that he considered pretentious. And there's, once again, there's two ways that um, it's kind of unclear, but there's two things that say different things, which, but they're, ba- they're basically equate to the same thing. He hired either eight or four bold men, depending on the story, and had the top of their heads painted with a single letter which either spelled out the word bollocks, while the other source says it was four men uh, made the word S-H-I-T, complete with the dot on top of the I, which were written to be easily legible from the circle and boxes above. On more than one occasion, he'd wandered the streets with a cow's udder poking through the fly of his trousers, causing outrage as he walked round. And upon reaching to quote, optimum outrage, he would produce a pair of scissors and cut off the offending protrusion to the horror of the surrounding populace. Of course, some of his hoaxes were kind of fucked up, and police officers were often targeted. Um, and don't do this one, guys. And don't do this. It will go down badly. <laughs> um, but one of his favourite pr- pranks was to drive around London in a taxi with a tailor's dummy of a nude woman in the cab. And whenever they approached a policeman, he'd order the driver to stop briefly before opening the cab door, banging the dummy's head on the road, and driving off at high speeds. There's something much more light, um, especially when targeting the general populace. He'd play on the 
to quote innate good manners of the typical Englishman um, and pose as a surveyor. So what he do was ask someone to hold an end, of, hold one end of a piece of string uh, for measuring purposes before disappearing around a corner and finding another man to hold the other end before casually walking away. Now my fa- like I think my favorite one, like not his most famous hope, but my favorite one. Well, it's pretty fun to spontaneity. And one day he came across a road crew about a foreman. So he went over and told them that he was a new foreman and directed them to Piccadilly Circus. And with the help of a kind policeman re- redirecting traffic around it, uh, he had them ex- excavate a huge trench in the middle of the road. It would take days before authorities noticed the unauthorized hole and got around to filling it in. But, like I said, not his most famous hoax. His most famous one was in 1910, when along with five friends, being the artist Duncan Grant, Adrian Stephen from the Cambridge hoax, Adrian Stephen's sister Virginia Stephen, uh, who would later find fame as being the writer of Virginia Woolf, Guy Ridley and Anthony Buxton. Now, in the summer of 1910, the HMS Dreadnought, which was the pride of the Edwardian fleet, was anchored off Weymouth when Admiral Sir William May received a signal from the Admiralty informing him that the Emperor of Abyssinia, nowadays better known as Ethiopia, and his party would shortly be arriving for an inspection of the ship. Now this came came about as a result of rivalries within the Navy, um, as one of Cole's friends was an, of, was an officer on the HMS Hawk, which was a rival of the Dreadnought. It's worth noting that the Dreadnought commander, Willie Fisher, was a cousin of the Stevens, and was on the staff of the Admiral at the time. Like Virginia Woolf later, re- later recounted, In those days, the young officers had a gay time. They were always up to some lark, and one of their chief occupations, it seemed, was to play jokes on each other. There were a great many rivalries and intrigues in the Navy. The officers liked scoring off each other, and the officers of the Hawk and the Dreadnought had a feud. And Cole's friend, who was on the Hawk, yeah. had come to Cole, and said to him, You're a great hand at hosting people. Couldn't you do something to pull the leg of the Dreadnought? So, Cole and his five friends got together and had themselves disguised by the theatrical costumer uh, Willie Clarkson with skin darkeners and turbans to resemble members of the Abyssinian royal family. The like, plan was set into motion on the 7th of February 1910 as Cole organised for an incumbent to send the previously mentioned telegram to the, dread- to the HMS Dreadnought, um, which was moored at Portland Harbour in Dorset. The message said that the ship must be prepared for the, for the visit of a group of princes from Abyssinia and was said to be signed by the Foreign Office Undersecretary Sir Charles Hardinge and Cole's dressed-up entourage headed over to London's Paddington Station where, where Cole claimed that he was Herbert Cholmondeley of the Foreign Office and demanded a special train to Weymouth. So the stagemaster arranged a VIP coach. Upon arriving in Weymouth, the Navy welcomed the alleged princes with an honour guard. However, they couldn't find an Abyssinian flag, so they used the flag of Zanzibar and played Zanzibar's national anthem. Yeah, and neither the visitors or any of the dignitaries that had assembled seemed to notice at all. They were welcomed on board by the Admiral, who gave them a personal guided tour of the ship that lasted for more than 40 minutes. According to uh, accounts of the day, the party paused at each new marvel appreciatively murmuring bunga bunga in what was thought to be their native tongue, because once again, they couldn't speak the language. Um, like To deal with this, Virginia was worried about speaking and being found out to be a woman, so she resorted to 
still fucked up, have thought about it, not going into it. But this isn't a study of how people were in 1910. Um, but yeah, Virginia was worried about um, speaking and being found out to be a woman, so she resorted to grunting like a monkey, while the others recited passages from Virgil's Aeneid. Yeah, assuming correctly that the naval officers wouldn't be able to identify Latin. They were almost caught when they were offered an invitation to have lunch on board, as the food might have caused makeup to run. So Adrian Stephen quickly explained that the food would be unacceptable on religious grounds. And as they inspected the fleet, to show their appreciation, they often communicated in a gibberish of words drawn from Latin and Greek. Uh, they also asked for prayer mats and attempted to bestow fake military honours on some of the officers. Uh, Commander Fisher was on the hand, but failed to recognise either of his cousins. And the next day, the Navy was horrified when the prank was uncovered, as Cole had contacted the press and sent a photo of the, quote, princes to the Daily Mirror, uh, which you can find online pretty easily. And, and the group having pacifist views caused, uh, caused it to be considered an even greater source of embarrassment than what, as it already was. And the Royal Navy briefly became an object of ridicule, as the press had a field day going at it. The expression Bunga Bunga essentially became a meme, with sailors on leave often being greeted with cries of Bunga Bunga. And later, when the Emperor of Abyssinia arrived shortly after, uh, he was also greeted with Bunga Bunga. And one newspaper suggested that the Dreadnought should change its name to the Abyssinian. Like the Admiralty was humiliated enough that it sent their pride and joy, the HMS Dreadnought, up to sea until it blew over. At first, the Royal Navy demanded that they, break, that they be arrested, but however, they hadn't actually, the group hadn't actually committed any crimes, and instead sent a group of junior officers to give the group, except Virginia, a quote, symbolic thrashing on the buttocks. A few years later, in 1915, during the First World War, the Dreadnought was, in, was used, though it didn't really see much significant action. However, it would become the only battleship to ever sink a German submarine by ramming it. Um, and among the telegrams of congratulation was one that read Bunga Bunga. And it's worth noting that the HMS Dreadnought prank cost Cole £4,000, which, which in 2017 terms is nearly £9,800. Yeah, anyway, just to round up, after that he was also suspected on, of the famous Piltdown Mound hoax, where bone fragments were presented as the fossilised remains of a previously unknown early human, uh, which was claimed to be the missing link between ape and man the last one and it, which is also my favorite because it's so freaking stupid <laughs> um was when he was on honeymoon uh when he was on a, on a honeymoon with, yeah. with his first wife the irish heiress denise lynch who he married on the 30th of september 1918 in dublin and who he had one child with he was in italy and on april fool's day 1919 they visited venice's piazza san marco and dropped horse manure onto the square. At this time, Venice is a city with no horses that can only be reached by boat. It's so dumb. <laughs> but yes, um, but yeah, the, the marriage would later fail in 1928, after losing all of his money in Canadian land speculation, and he went into voluntary exile in France, though his pranks weren't so popular over there. And in 1931, he married a former scullery maid and waitress at the Viraswamy Indian restaurant. Mabel Winifred Mary Wright, who would later be known as Mavis Wheeler, and would give and would give birth to English TV director um, Tristan Devere Cole, who was actually the son of the artist Augustus John. Um, Cole died the next year in Honfleur, France, of a heart attack, 
uh, and would be buried at, at West Bude. After this, Mabel would marry the archaeologist uh, Mortimer Wheeler, who would, who would later divorce her on grounds of adultery with Lord Vivian. Which is kind of rich, since, um, from what I can tell, Wheeler would physically hit her when she, when she annoyed him, and was known for conspicuous promiscuity, favouring young, young women for one-night stands, many of whom were his students, including being known for casual sex in public places, and would go through multiple wives and mistresses over, over his life. Uh, archaeologist Gabriel Moshenka would tell a report from the Daily Mail that, that Mortimer Wheeler was, had developed a reputation as a bit of a groper and a sex pest, and an incredible bully as well. But later, she'd um, come into public spotlight as lover of Lord Vivian. When I, however, when I was reading into it, turns out at one point she led to Lord Vivian coming into the public spotlight and and gaining fame at when she shot him in the abdomen. Now there wasn't too much information about her actually, from what I can tell. Yeah, she shot him in the abdomen on the 30th of July 1954 at a range of three inches um, in Wiltshire. And she was on trial for the shooting with intent to murder. However, Lord Viv Vivian was adamant that she hadn't meant to do it. But the main issue that the prosecution and the defence both had was that Lord Vivian himself didn't really, wasn't really sure what had happened as he had been extremely drunk at the time. Having drunk a quarter bottle of wine, three liqueurs, seven to eight glasses of sherry, three to four bottles of stout and possibly two other drinks. While Mavis said that she and Lord Vivian had been joking around with a pistol and had accidentally gone off when she had tried to take it from her. Yeah. She had been found guilty of maliciously wounding Vivian and was sentenced six months of imprisonment. And ten minutes after, after the sentence, the couple was found, to quote, just because I like this phrase, um, locked in the most unmurderous of embraces uh, in a cell beneath the courtroom. And when she was released on the 2nd of February 1955, she was pictured being escorted from jail with Lord Vivian. But yes, anyway, I think that's everything I have. Yeah. So I'll cut the music and then uh, outro it up. I'll see you, see you in a bit. And we are back. So... Um, hope you enjoyed that story. It was a bit different. I went in a weird direction with this one. But honestly, I think I needed something a bit lighter as moving is very stressful at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sorry to slate. I'll have it. I should hopefully I'll have it uploaded as soon as it's done. But it's late at the time of recording. So it's obviously late. <laughs> hopefully I should be more free soonish. Uh, and we should have less turbulence in July. So I hope we'll see how it goes. But I didn't really want to leave the week without an episode. So here you go. <laughs> I guess this is a good time to plug the Murderly Network. So that's murder.ly. And you can check out some great other podcasts on there. Like I've also got the next Patreon episode recorded. Sorry, it's late again. It's moving. Like, like once again, move, moving is kind of just throwing a big wrench in my timings. As a yeah, it's taking longer than I expected. Social media, we have Facebook at at facebook.com slash blood and the rocks, Twitter and Instagram at the bloody rocks, email at botrpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we also have a Discord server that I'll put in the um, description. So, um, having that, if you want to support the show and or feed me, 
Uh, you can check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash blood and rocks. And like I said, we should have a, the second part of the thing done as soon as I can. Um, and I think that's everything, actually. Sorry, it's a bit out of place, but thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends and have a great week. I'll see you soon.